Find in your Bibles this evening, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For us, uh, February the 10th of 1999 was a, well, I don't know, a standout day in the Betry family. We were waiting for our niece to be born. We knew this was the case when we went to bed on February the 9th that uh, our, well, niece was about to be born. Our sister-in-law was uh, having contractions and all of that, and so we were waiting for who we knew to be baby Hannah. And so we went to bed that night, and in the middle of the night, the phone rang. Immediately, my wife popped up and goes, It's baby Hannah! I was the one close to the phone, and I picked it up. And the answer, the, the person at the other end of the line was a rather gruff-sounding individual, but just simply said this, uh, Your vehicle has been involved in an altercation. Now, I am not a morning person or when I woke up am I the quickest and the swiftest of whatever the case is but I was thinking through the thoughts that went through my head how could my vehicle be involved in an altercation I knew it was out in my driveway it was there when I parked it uh, that night and it was there and whatever else and so I began to give a response. I go, no, I, I, I'm not sure what you're talking about. My vehicle is in my driveway. And the person was very insistent that, no, your vehicle has been involved in an altercation. What had happened was this, is that uh, one of the young people in the neighborhood uh, had uh, broken into our car. There had been a series of different burglaries throughout the alleyway and our neighborhood that was there. And <clears throat> he had broken into our car and uh, he had uh, learned, hot-wired it. And all you do is take off a side panel and then if you have a screwdriver and that, you can actually start a car. I've, I've learned this now. I, I, I'm not making a life a crime, but I've learned how to do this. But this young man uh, took the car and started to drive around the community about 1230 in the morning. Uh, but he was young enough that he didn't know how to really drive a car. And so he was driving around the neighborhood in that car, and he missed a turn that he was trying to make. And so he backed the car up in order to do that and ran into a moving truck. He backed in the moving truck. He realized that at 1230 at night, the people who were well, there with the moving truck, were still awake. In fact, they were eating supper because they had just gotten done moving everything into their house and they heard the crash and they immediately jumped outside to see what was going on and then a chase resumed or presumed uh, in the community as they ran around the community chasing this young man and he kept going by a house and knocking on the window of that house and then he'd go running and they'd keep following him and he would go by and knock on the window of a house again and then keep running again. And they finally figured it probably wasn't a good idea to keep chasing him because sooner or later there may be somebody around a corner. But I had to go and rescue my car, February 10th, 1999. I learned how to drive with uh, starting my car with a screwdriver and the like. But the whole event was upsetting. 
Because I was pretty sure when I woke up, my car was still in the driveway. The only thing I could think of is that perhaps it maybe had rolled, you know, it was an old enough car that perhaps it had rolled across the alleyway and rolled into the other, you know, neighbor's yard or the like, and that's what I thought the altercation was, not realizing that it had been stolen. You know what? Thieves don't announce when they are going to rob you. They don't do that. And this passage is, uh, if you've already previously read, talks about a thief in the night. And what's going to happen is that it's talking about the events yet future and that the world is not ready for what's about to happen. In fact, the events are going to come like a thief in the night. They're not ready. But as we read through and as we go through this passage, there should be a group of individuals that are ready for the Lord's return, and that's those that know Christ, those that are believers. They ought to be ready for this event that comes like a thief in the night. The event that we're going to talk about is the event known as the Day of the Lord. And we'll get into a little bit more detail of what that is, but it's a future event yet to happen. But we find it uh, mentioned here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want us to read through the passage, uh, going on down to verse 11. So we'll start at verse 1, read down to verse number 11 of this passage that is for believers to understand how they should respond to this event coming called the Day of the Lord. It starts this way, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness." Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in night. They that be drunken are drunken in night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. We were to give a theme to this passage, it would simply be this, is that believers are light for those that are heading into the day of the Lord. Believers are light for those that are heading into the day of the Lord. As the Apostle Paul starts this passage, remember that it is in the context of future events. The last section that we had was the section that dealt with what is known as the rapture of the church, where the church is snatched out before uh, the events of the tribulation, where God deals with the world, but specifically the nation of Israel. And suddenly there is more questions that the church at Thessalonica seemed to have, just beyond this, what happens to the dead in Christ. See, this passage is not dealing necessarily with the dead in Christ, those that have already passed uh, into the presence of the Lord, but their body is still here. This passage is for those that are still here. 
Okay, what are we supposed to be doing? Okay, the next event on the chart for those that are dead in Christ is their body's going to raise uh, to meet them uh, in the presence of the Lord. But for us, we're still here. So what should we be doing in the time that we have? And for Paul, he notes this, is that even if he was a short time at this uh, church at Thessalonica, it's not a lengthy time that he was there, it seems like he spent a lot of time on what was going to happen in the future. What was going to occur yet uh, in uh, the plan of God. And this event of the day of the Lord seems to be something that he talked about because the Apostle Paul makes clear, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. He's simply saying, we talked about this. We went through and explained all of this to you uh, about the day of the Lord. So I really don't need to talk too much about it. But he is going to talk about it. He goes on to talk about it, but it's not so much the event itself, but how to respond beforehand. See, this event, uh, the rapture that we just talked about, is the event where the church is snatched out. But the next event on the prophetic calendar after that is an event that is known as the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is an event that if you read your Old Testament, especially the prophets, and read through them, that you'll find this event, the day, the Day of the Lord, this coming day, uh, you'll see that referred to quite often through the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's called the Day of the Lord, the Day of Christ. It goes by that terminology. It's the next event on the prophetic calendar after the rapture. Some might refer to it to the tribulation, but it's a little bit more broad than including just the tribulation. This event of the day of the Lord, remember this, when we talk about a day from a Jewish perspective, okay, their day doesn't start like ours. In fact, if we were to be of Jewish culture, their day would have started about 20 minutes ago. Six o'clock in the evening. This is why when you read in the book of Genesis where it talks about this, that evening and morning were the first day, and evening and morning were the second day, and evening and morning were the third day. That's how the Jews did their day. And so you think about this when it talks about a day, they would have darkness first and then light. This event of the day of the Lord that is coming is not referring to a 24-hour time period. It's referring to an overall event that's going to take place where it starts off with darkness first and then goes into light. The darkness part would be the part where God judges the world, where he works the nation of Israel. It would be that time we know as the tribulation, that seven-year time period where it gets very, very dark. You read the account in Revelation and you have uh, well over half the world's population dying in that time frame. A seven and a year time frame. You imagine that, at least four billion, probably more than that, passing off the scene, passing off of life. And so you would say there are some really dark times there, and the answer is yes. There is. But then you have an event where it's like, and you have Christ referred to this, the day star, this type of thing, the sun rising, 
where the Lord comes back and everything changes at the second coming, where you go from a time of destruction and judgment to a time period where Jesus Christ rules and reigns on the earth. When you have the term, the day of the Lord, it refers both to that time of judgment and that time where the Lord rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. You have the darkness of the night, the light of the day. And so you have this event that's referred to. It can be sometimes as you read in the Old Testament and the New, you're reading about it and it's talking about judgment. And you're going, okay, that's this portion that we're talking about where the Lord is going to judge the nations. But there's also other things that are to be looked forward to. And you're like, well, what's there to look forward to? It's that part of the day where the Lord does rule and reign on the earth. The, wor the world functions like it's supposed to. You have peace on earth, truly, and goodwill to men. You have this taking place for a thousand years. And this is an event that's always talked about. Uh, even in the closing of events of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi talks about this event. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a taste of what the Old Testament we're talking about when it talked about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, uh, Malachi chapter uh, 4, verse 1 says this, Behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Verse 3 says this, And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the sole of your feet. In the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. And then this statement, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great, or coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's reference to one of the two witnesses, I believe, that are going to be a part of that tribulation time that's announcing what the Lord's doing. So you have this event, the day of the Lord. It's coming. Tribulation, and then what we would call the millennial kingdom, where the Lord reigns for a thousand years on the earth. And so with that theme of day and night, or night and day, as you, you might do it from the Jewish perspective, there are two aspects that Paul is going to play off of. People who are of the day and people who are of the night. People who are of the light and people who are of the darkness. Now these events of the day of the Lord will come as a surprise to the world. More than likely, as we have uh, information about the tribulation, uh, when the church disappears, uh, is raptured out, I don't think the world's going to notice that much. You know, why is that? Uh, because there is going to be probably a time where the world's problems start getting solved. If you read in the book of Revelation, you have this man who's the, called the Antichrist. Or the beast, as he's sometimes referred to. But he is pictured early on in Revelation as one who's going forth and conquering without a bow. Or, excuse me, without arrows and a bow. You go, what does that mean? He's conquering without having to have war. He's solving problems. 
And the reason he's called Antichrist is not just because he's against Christ, Jesus the Messiah. That word anti also means in the language, in place of. People start viewing him as the Messiah, the problem solver. Everything's going fantastic. Things are getting solved. Even though we have wars and difficulties, things seem to be getting better. And it's because of this individual who's doing all these things. And so for them, when the bad things begin to happen, it's a complete shock to them, and it's going to be on a grand scale. And so when you think about the day of the Lord, this night that starts, these people are thinking this way. They're thinking peace and safety. The world's going to go, hey, everything's fine. We're doing well. You know, even though there's some problems, this is the best we've been able to do. It seems like we've got things organized through some of the governments in the world here, and it seems to be a, a good place. And then suddenly, as the Scripture says in verse number 3, sudden destruction cometh upon them. See, this was not something that the Lord uh, in His ministry hid either, that the day of the Lord would come as a surprise to the world. In talking to his disciples about future events, he said this, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father alone. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. What it's simply describing is this, is that the people are thinking everything's okay. Like Noah's time, I'm guessing there weren't growing storm clouds and the things like this going on for these people to be like, what's going on? They were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage. They were going about daily activities just like normal. Everything's okay. There's peace and security until the flood came. So it is going to be when the day of the Lord happens is that the world is going to be crying, peace, security, everything's fine, and then the judgment will suddenly come. And for them, there is no way of escape. And you go, what do you mean by the fact that there's no way of escape? The passage describes it this way, this sudden destruction shall come as travail upon a woman with child. You think about a woman who's about to give birth, the pain starts, and there's no escaping that pain. It's going to happen. And so it is when the day of the Lord comes, it's as sure uh, as the promises of Christ that it's going to happen. And when it does happen, there is no escape. This idea of peace and safety, I need to go back here for a second, was a, a thought process in the mind of the Thessalonians. They had been a culture for many years that had been one that had been uh, threatened by wars and... Uh, different activities like that. Uh, they were on a road that was known as the Ignatian Way, a very important highway in the ancient world, and they were set upon this. But in their time, about a hundred years before Christ, they were having problems with uh, bands and tribes of people that were blocking the roads and surrounding them in their city, and they were always looking for security. And when the Romans came, suddenly you had this thing for them where they had peace. It was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They had security. They had safety. And it was because 
Well, the Romans had brought that. They didn't have to worry about bands of robbers uh, on the road or tribes coming through and trying to take their city. They suddenly had safety. And so this had been a mantra of this city for a number of years, that it was a safe city. It was a city at peace. I mean, they believed uh, this. And, and so when Paul uses this terminology, he's playing on their own thoughts that they're safe, they're secure, and that's what they're going to feel like. But all of a sudden, this destruction is going to come. And so it's no escaping. But you have to note this, that it is not something that believers who are raptured out are going to go through. It's not to say that people won't be saved during the tribulation. You read Revelation, there are going to be thousands upon thousands, if not millions upon perhaps billions that come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ during that time frame. But as for the church, those that are in Christ, they aren't going to be a part of it. You say, why is that? Look at verse 4. But ye brethren are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Okay, You're not going to be taken by this. You're not going to be a part of these things. You're not going to be there. You're aware of the events that they're going to happen, and you're not going to be a part of them. The believers are going to escape. They're going to escape the wrath that is to come. Uh, and uh, they had that security. I mean, this is what you find in verse 9, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation, that there's an escaping of judgment both, not, both now and for eternity for these believers. So this day of the Lord is not something that believers in Christ, those that are part of the church, is going to experience. So there might be this thought, okay, if I'm not going to be a part of the day of the Lord, it really does not matter how I act because I'm safe. I'm secure. And with the Apostle Paul is going to deal with is the present activities of believers before the day of the Lord. What ought they to be like before this event takes place uh, for the world? And you have this contrast. You have this contrast of light and day, as we said, night and darkness. And understand, when we talk about darkness in the, the, this sense, we're also talking about the spiritual sense. I mean, John chapter 3 has a, a play on the fact that night and darkness is pointing to people who aren't saved. This is why the story starts off with Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. It's not just the fact that he wanted to keep hidden. It was the fact that he wasn't saved. He was a man looking for his own righteousness to save him. And so he was, well, even though he's coming at night, it's John's way of indicating this man doesn't know Christ yet. He's not saved. He's not been regenerated. But there's a play on this at the end of that story where the explanation takes place. And it says this in John 3.18. It says this, He that believeth on him, Jesus, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they're wrought in God. John three eighteen through 21 
have this passage that we say, why does the world not like Christ? Because they don't want their deeds revealed. They would rather be in the darkness spiritually that they're in. They don't want to get near the light of the world and the things of the light of the world because they're afraid their deeds would be displayed, made obvious that they're not right. And think about this in some of you that have had kids and teenagers uh, and when you come into the room and they're not getting up fast enough and you flip the light switch on, what is their reaction to that? It's a groan, perhaps a throwing of the blanket over their head and turning to the wall away from the light. That's what the world is like. They don't like light because they love living in darkness. They love, as we will see, to sleep rather than be awake. And you think this, not surprisingly, the authors could describe Christian salvation as a passage from darkness to light. I'll give you some passages where it talks about salvation being this way. Uh, The Apostle Paul talking about his work with the Gentiles, and he said this, it was to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance amongst them which are sanctified by faith that is in me, Acts 26, 18 says. Or Colossians 1, 13 and 14, talking about the glories of Christ. Paul says this, He is one who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The idea of being transferred from the power of darkness into a new kingdom that's the Son, who is light. Or Peter, if you think this is exclusively a message of Peter uh, and John, or excuse me, Paul and John, Peter talks about this. First Peter 2, he says this, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. You find this play throughout of individuals who are saved as people who are in the light and those who are not saved as those who are in the dark. They're this way. The Christian has left behind the sinfulness of darkness and now live in the light of holiness. The believers in Thessalonica had been liberated from moral darkness and were not to live in sin. They were not to be in darkness so as to be prepared for this day. Believers have been delivered from the power of darkness and transplanted into the kingdom of God's dear Son. So if there is this theology where we have been translated from, the light, or from darkness to light, that we are in uh, this kingdom that's full of holiness as in comparison to a kingdom of sinfulness, Paul then goes, okay, there's a contrast that we can understand on the basis of what we know happens during the day and the night. People during the day are typically awake. They're alert to circumstances. They know what's going on around them, uh, and they are active. But what typically happens at night? People are asleep, or the Apostle Paul is going to throw this in, they're drunk. 
Okay? Drunkenness was not, in that culture, something that happened during the day. This is, uh, you knew this uh, from, if you've read Acts chapter 2, where uh, you have the disciples there who are suddenly filled with the Holy Ghost, and they're out in the streets preaching the gospel in languages that people can understand, and there's people saying there, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning and they're already drunk? The Apostle Peter has to make clear, no, this is not uh, the control of alcohol on an individual on individuals. This is the power of the Holy Spirit working through these individuals, controlling them. I mean, there are the, the, the comparison goes on from this that there is this idea of watchfulness and soberness in contrast to sleepiness and drunkenness. Now, if you were reading this passage through like you would have as a scroll, you would have had people that were asleep in the previous passage, and those are people who had died. But in this passage, it's using the word sleep in a different way. You have people who are not alert to things going on around them that are about to happen. They're unaware. They don't know what's going on. And as you look at the Lord, when he talks about how his disciples should act and how his followers should act, there is this push throughout his ministry for them to watch, be ready, and be prepared. Act as if something is going to happen. For instance, this word watch that is used in this passage in verse number 6, where it says, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Uh, you have this very well presented and illustrated when Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes there to pray. And he calls his disciples to come with him, and then he calls three more to come further into the Garden of Gethsemane with him, Peter, James, and John. And he comes, and he says, you wait here, and you pray. And he goes off, and he prays, and then he comes back, and what does he find his disciples doing? Well, he comes to his disciples in Matthew 26, and he says this. He finds them asleep, and he says to Peter, what could, ye, or excuse me, what could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay, you don't know what's about to come, because the events for them... They're about to be assaulted in a garden by men armed with spears and swords and with torches and armed this way. They're going to show up suddenly in the peacefulness of that night. They're not ready for this because they're not even alert to their own immediate circumstances, let alone being aware of the fact that this is going to happen. In the Gospel of Mark, you have the Lord uh, talking about future events, and he uses the same idea of being watchful, aware of the surrounding circumstances. And it's this, uh, he says this, But of that day and the hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say to all, watch." He was telling his disciples, you need to be alert to what's going on. At any time, the events can change. And you need to be aware of this and act as if it's about to happen. 
And if you believe the fact that it's about to happen, there is going to be a difference in living your life. The term that is connected with watching, you find in verse number six, let us watch and be sober. And that word sober was talking about an individual, oftentimes in its regular context, was to describe an individual who was not under the influence of alcohol. But it's a term that uh, those of the writers of the scriptures took this to be a term that basically said this, that you need to have self-restraint and self-control. That this is a part of life that ought to be going on. That in your activities, there's a restraint. There is a, uh, a controlledness that doesn't allow yourself to get out of control. Not to go over and step boundaries that you should not. And for the believer, this idea of self-control is one that you don't, in, in, in understanding this, is that you don't act like those who are of the night who are asleep, who are drunk. What he's calling for is that the believers, though he does not detail exactly what he wants believers to do, he's saying your life ought to be a contrast to those that don't have an understanding of God and those that don't know who he is and they're not worried about his coming. They're asleep and living for themselves. They're out of control. They're not self-controlled or under control. They're out of control. The life of a believer always ought to be very clearly one who is living as if they're going to have to give account to God. That Christ is coming. He really truly is. And that you ought to live your life as if he is coming. There are a number of things that you would not be doing, and you've brought to you've probably had this brought to you. There's a number of things that you probably wouldn't do if you thought the Lord was going to come back in this instant. And what Paul is saying is that you live like people who are controlled, knowing that at any time the Lord could come back, that he could be here. You live your life like this, in contrast to the ones who don't know what's going on. They think everything's okay. They're enjoying life to the fullest, not realizing that the Lord is going to come back and he's going to judge. I mean, for us as believers, we're prepared to live a life like this, Okay, we aren't left on our own to try and live a life that's pleasing to God. We're equipped. I mean, look, look at what it says in verse number 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Here you've got terminology that's related to the armor of God. And understand, this is not uh, just a, a random thought that the Apostle Paul picked up and he started using this, but he used uh, this uh, idea both in this passage, Ephesians chapter 6, but it was a theme that reflected the character of God. God is reflected as taking on certain pieces of armor. This passage in Isaiah 59 and verse 17 is a statement of God coming in judgment on the world. And it says this, For he hath put on righteousness as a breastplate. The helmet of salvation is upon his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with a zeal, or was clad with zeal as a cloak. 
The Apostle Paul is giving an armor to those that are followers of Christ. You're simply reflecting what Christ is like. He is clothed in righteousness. He has these things. And he comes with an armament of salvation. And for Paul, when he said to, to the believers that they needed to be prepared for this life because there is an individual that's out there by the name of the devil who would love this world to continue in darkness, the minds of individuals being blinded, he would love that to be the case. Paul says you need to be armed. You need to have the weapons that God has given to you that you claim these things. Verse 14, Stand having therefore your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. These are the weapons that are available to us to live in a world that is controlled by an individual who wants people to remain in darkness. He's given us, God has given us the ability to live in righteousness. What does that mean? Living in a way that reflects what God's character is like, who He is. We have that ability. Uh, and as it says in this passage, that you take on the breastplate of faith and love. That you have the security of being one who knows God. But also that you're one who knows that there's others. This idea of love is not just merely a love for God, but it's a love reflected for other individuals. When you get together with other believers, you recognize the fact that you're not alone. There are others that are serving God. There's that security, that strengthening that takes place when an individual uh, comes and is a part of a group like this. And then you have the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. And understand when you have the word hope in the Scripture, it's not talking about a kid hoping he gets a Christmas present. It's talking about a solid confidence. It's sometimes translated assurance. A very bold confidence this is a, a, an individual who lives their life like this, is one who's confident the Lord is coming back and he's taking me home. He's already claimed it multiple times that he's coming. He's prepared a place. He's coming back to bring me to be with him. I'm headed for safety. I'm going to be saved. I am saved right now. That's my standing. But one day I'll be saved out of this world. I'll be rescued. And that's the theme that the Apostle Paul then plays on. You have the equipment to live the way you should in a world that is hoping to stay in darkness and live the way they are right now. But you've been equipped. But understand this. You have the confidence of the fact that you're saved. Look at verse 9. You have the helmet of the hope of salvation. Verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. I mean, you can put this word in here, uh, and it's the same word. It means the same thing. Rescue. Okay? You're not going to be a part of the wrath to come, both in the day of the Lord, nor are you going to be a part of the eternal wrath of God in a place called hell, but you have been rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's exciting when you think about that. And think about how it was obtained. This Lord Jesus Christ, He died for us. If you don't think that the offer was real, that of salvation was real, he was willing to put his life on the line. 
to say that we could have life eternal. And not only this, that you find this, that He, one that died for us, whether we're awake or asleep, that we should live together with Him. He not only died, but that story that we're coming up to and celebrating at Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He rose from the dead bodily to give us the confidence that when He said that you'll have eternal life, It's not only talking about your soul and spirit being with God, but the body that gets put into the ground one day will rise anew to be with Him. It'll be completely different, never suffering any of the diseases that we have gone through or the sorrow. This body that we'll have will be delivered forever to live with God. Now that statement in verse number 10 which says whether we wake or sleep, understand now we're talking about whether you're awake, you're alive right now, or sleep, like people who have died. Okay, so he kind of plays off this term, but then goes into the idea of waking and sleeping. We should live together with him. Okay, we're rescued. We're safe. But understand this, you live in a world of people who are not safe. They may think they're safe. They may think they're secure. And they don't want anybody to you know, shake their mind on this. But if a believer is living the way that they should be, as one that says, the Lord is coming again. He is coming back and He is going to judge. And you live a life as if you're going to one day stand before God. You will be one who is a, well, sounding the warning. Is like that alarm clock in the morning that people don't like to hear. And some people, they like the snooze, so they keep hitting it over and over and over again. But that alarm that goes off again and again and again, it may be that you're that individual in the life of an individual who is in darkness, that they're not of the light, they're not of the day, They're walking in darkness. You're that alarm clock that is sounding over and over again that they need to be ready. And it may be by your life, and it may be by your verbal testimony, both of those combined, that you're sounding that alarm. And the Apostle Paul gets done with this and doesn't go necessarily in that direction immediately. You might think, okay, so he would say, I've told you all this, wherefore, make sure everybody knows. No, in this case, the conclusion of the passage that he gives is, well, on the same kind of line of what you had in the previous passage. When we talked about the rapture and the Apostle Paul ends with the statement, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, strengthen one another. Well, when the Apostle Paul goes done with this passage, he says this, wherefore, comf- excuse me, wherefore comfort yourselves together. And that word comfort is the word that we get paraclete from. It's the word used to describe the Holy Spirit, that he's a comforter. And you say, what is a paraclete? It's one who comes alongside. If we know that the day of the Lord is coming and there is a call for us to be ready and watching what we ought to be doing is helping others to be ready and watching. 
that we sometimes, is it the word here, comfort, come alongside, it may be that we come alongside individuals and help them to realize, listen, we live in a world that is going to eternal uh, perishing. There ought to be a difference in the way that we live. We come along other side, along other side believers and say, should we not live differently? And this is part of the one another that's reflected in the church that the Apostle Paul talks about, is that sometimes we have the responsibility as fellow believers, ones who are of the day, to remind each other we ought to be living differently. We ought to be obvious in our testimony. We ought to be obvious in our life. And sometimes that word paraclete has the idea of admonishing. Sometimes you need to say to somebody, listen, what are people in your work thinking by you living like this? Are they being warned of the fact that the Lord is coming? Or are they going, hey, here's a person that's just like me? And sometimes it takes admonishment. But other times it just takes encouragement. The individual, you have to remind them, hey, you've got people that are around you that may not have an idea that the Lord's coming. Have you ever thought about challenging them? Have you ever thought about letting them know what the Lord has done in order to rescue them from something like this, the day of the Lord that's coming? And so this word comfort is not just merely a, a, you know, a warm and fuzzy term. You, know, you think of the word comforter and you think of this nice worn afghan or something that you may have in your household and that type of thing. But, but it's got multifacets to it. Yes, it is encouraging, it is giving comfort, but sometimes there's admonition that needs to take place. And we need to do this as fellow believers sometimes, just to remind each other we're living in a world that is walking in darkness and we need to walk as if we're in the light. We need to do this. But you find that the other challenge is this, is that you edify one another. That's the word to build up. Okay, I, there, there are times when you have new believers. Okay, the new believers are still coming out and being a Christian is a new thing to them. And they just need building up. This also requires you coming alongside, but you come alongside them and help them grow in their knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ what it is to reflect Christ and what it is to look like Christ and, and be prepared for the life to come. There is a responsibility we have to build each other up. But especially, I think this is a term that's used to describe those that are new in Christ. Build them up so that they can be the light, reflecting the light of Christ in their life. That they will be a bright light wherever they are at. So the day of the Lord, it's coming. When it's coming, don't know. Okay, could be tomorrow. Rapture could happen tonight. Tribulation could start right after that immediately, or it could be a little bit after that, but it is coming. So are you acting as if you are one who recognizes the fact that this world is one day going to be judged? Are you calling people, warning people, living in a way that is different so that the world goes, why is that person living differently? Why are they living in a way that's not like me, one that is somewhat self-controlled? Why do they live their life like this? 
We ought to be a watchman, or as it is described uh, in the one passage, a porter, as it was in the gospel story there. We should serve as a person who is warning people of advancing destruction and armies. We ought to be living our life like that, both in action and in words. Alert and ever-present in our testimony to a world that will one day go through the day of the Lord. We're being rescued but let's be part of the rescuing of others by our living of our life while we have time to live here in this world that we ought to be ones that are calling others and helping being a part of that rescue before the day of the Lord comes. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for the salvation that's been mentioned in this passage, that Jesus Christ saves sinners just like us that He died in behalf of us in our place, and we're thankful for that. But may we not just be satisfied that we're saved, that we're safe. May we live in a way that acknowledges the fact that you have a population of this world and the majority of the population of this world that is headed to destruction. And not only are they walking in darkness, they're headed for eternal darkness, separated from you forever. Lord, may we live as ones who are of the day. May our testimony be bright as lights. May we not uh, do anything to have people think that we are of the darkness. And help us to have a very clear testimony. We live in a world that would love to just drown us and uh, dull our testimony, dull the brightness that we can have. Satan would love to destroy as many people as he could, and he would love to dull our testimony. May we be children that reflect the Son of God in light. So Lord, we love you. We're thankful for this reminder that we can rejoice that we're headed somewhere, but while we're still here, we have responsibility. May we do it well until one day we are safe at home with you. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.